This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. We'll begin with the first 21 minutes at St James's Park, by which time Newcastle were 5-0 up against Tottenham Hotspur. A pivotal moment for Eddie Howe's team, who are within touching distance of Champions League football. I really hope Christian Stellini didn't revert to a back four because I told him to last week on the pod. Not a great weekend for North London as Arsenal stutter once again in the title race. And every week, the one-point gained or two-point dropped conversation seems slightly more futile. At the bottom, a good weekend for all the teams that won and a bad weekend for all the teams that lost. That's kind of how it works. And was Crystal Palace Everton the worst Premier League match of all time? I actually forgot to put the FA Cup semi-finals in the intro. Take from that what you will. Also today, how come no one's mentioned Wrexham this season? There's some EFL, some Women's Champions League, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Will Unwin, welcome. Hello, Max. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. How are you doing? I'm very well. Hello, Barry Glendenning. Hi, Max. Uh, we'll get to how you are, Barry, a little <laughs> bit later on. Um, uh, Pug Tastrophy says, where was the Just Stop Oil gang when we needed them, signed all Spurs fans? Uh, Jim, last week, Wilson said he couldn't remember seeing a more one-sided Premier League game than Brighton-Chelsea. Has Newcastle Spurs immediately overtaken that? 5-0 after 21 minutes, it kind of had the air of that Liverpool-Man United second half where every time Newcastle attacked, they scored. And Eric Dyer and Hugo Lloris just looked more sad and the camera panned to them. But this seemed kind of more real than that game, Barry. You messaged me in the middle of the night saying, are you watching this? And actually, I saw that message before I knew the result and I thought, that doesn't bode well, <laughs> does it? But um, should we try and start with how good Newcastle were before within... Five seconds, someone says, yes, but. Uh, they, yeah, they were outstanding. It was a, an excellent reaction to their fairly emphatic defeat at the hands of Aston Villa um, last week. And I expected a performance like that because I imagine Eddie Howe wasn't at all impressed uh, with what he saw when they played Villa. It was obviously made very easy for them, but just every single thing they seemed to attempt went right. You know, no one, there were no missteps. Every shot was on target. Every shot that was on target, not only on target, but went in. Uh, they they carved open the Tottenham defence in a variety of ways. And I, I keep sort of seeing motorways, you know, signs go with yes, but pointed in this direction. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to stay tunnel vision. I, I saw on social media some Newcastle fans saying that, uh, you know, everyone thinks we're only good because of the money, but their players, you know, Sean Longstaff was brilliant, Jacob Murphy was brilliant, uh, others um, others mentioned as well, and they were there long before the money arrived, and that is an ex- to an extent is true. Uh, Eddie Howe has certainly improved those players, but there were also expensive new signings involved, and they were excellent too. And I'm sorry, I can't resist anymore. Spurs were dreadful. But credit to Newcastle, they, they tore into them from the get-go. And I, I was quite gobsmacked by what I saw. And, and the goals kept coming. It was quite funny, actually. I think after 3-0, Jacob Murphy had sent that 30-yard shot swerving past Loris. The camera cut to uh, 
uh, Ryan Mason and Christian Stellini on the sideline. And they were both doing that footballer thing where they had their hands over their mouths, you know, deep in conversation. And I was just imagining the conversation sort of went, I have no idea what to do about this. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> Well, let's just keep talking like this and make it look as if we're trying to figure something out. Well, I suppose, objectively, it was hilarious. And from a Spurs point of view, it was slightly disappointing, Will. But it is one well-coached football team with a plan and a structure and sensible recruitment against a total shit show. Yeah, it was one of those occasions where, I think as a pure layman in footballing terms with no coaching knowledge or anything usually you know someone plays a great pass like, oh how did he see that you're watching the game think oh that's a massive gap that ball's going to go through there like, oh yeah there it goes there it goes that massive gap that Spurs have left for everyone to play through they had a week to plan that back four they trained for a whole week with those personnel that were obviously not up to the job especially at fullback and still went with it and it was awful it didn't look like anyone had played in a back four before it didn't look like they'd met each other even on a stag it was <laughs> quite pitiful the fact is that they've hired the assistant manager having let their manager go because things weren't going well this person has never coached at the top level as a head coach and it just shows and you know squad morale looks pretty desperate and when you are putting people in, like even Perisic at left back and Pedro Porro at right back, even your teammates must think, I'm not sure they're up to this job. And then once you go a goal down early on, then everyone's going, yeah, oh no, I was right. Oh, this is going to go awfully. And that's that's how it looked. Yeah. Uh, Joe says, did Stellini take fans wishes too far by playing only two defenders? I mean, the second goal, Wilson, is amazing, isn't it? Because Porro looks at Joe Linton. And then he must forget within three seconds that he's seen it like a goldfish. He's forgotten he's there. And then the ball just floats over Romero. Like, like he sort of goes, ah, oh, it's not my problem. And then Joe Linton puts it away. And it's just shambolic. Well, it's one of those goals where you see it and you think, oh, football's really easy, isn't it? And you say, yeah, if it's that easy, why, why don't teams just do that all the time? Just just lift a little ball over top, run on, score. Dead easy. And it's, you know, it's because... Tottenham have pushed out. There's no pressure on the ball. And then they've seen Johnson making the run. Nobody's begun to track it. Presumably, Poro thinks that the offside's going to catch him. But yeah, there's so much time in midfield to play the pass that it's easy to measure. Sherlington takes it very, very well. And yeah, I thought he had an excellent game. I, I only saw the highlights because I was at the Cup semi-final. Because Wembley, for reasons that I don't understand, don't let you in as media until two hours before kickoff. I was still on the tube going up there. It was one of those games where I was quite annoyed that Wembley had stopped me, as I thought, watching the first half hour of the game. And then I was just on the tube watching my phone. I didn't even bother to watch it when I got into the Wembley because it was already 5-0. So it was, yeah, it was just so... I mean, I think there is a solution here that, that is staring us in the face, which is Tottenham changed their manager because they desperately needed to change something just to, just to arrest the slide. And it hasn't quite worked because the person involved is too associated with, with what went before. Chelsea have done something quite similar. So is there a case with <laughs> Stellini and Lampard swapping jobs for the last month of the season? Because ha ha how could it be any worse? No, it couldn't. I mean, I, I love the fact that Stellini went 3-4-3 three, three at 5-0. And you think, I feel the horse. He drew the, drew the second half, though, didn't he? That, that, he did draw the second half. But so that is a point, Wilson, isn't it? Here is a team that haven't played a back four for, what, 15 months or something? 
Like, is a week enough time? I mean, I kind of agree with, well, they're all footballers. They must have played. Well, actually, they haven't played in a back forward. I mean, when did Perisic play left back? I mean, he's ostensibly a centre forward. It's very difficult to know without knowing what training they do. Uh, I'm not sure any team should ever just be playing a back three. You know, I, I think, I understand teams that only play a back four. Only playing a back three seems to be a massive risk. If only because you need three centre-backs to play it. And there will be times when you get injuries to centre-back. And the fact you need three of them, you need to be able to adjust. So I, I would I would like to think that all teams have at least some capability to switch between a three and a four. There must be times in games, according to the opposition, where you're playing a three, you want to switch to a four or, or, or the opposite. But I, I would have thought three to four is, is a more common requirement. If you're playing a, if you're playing a, a team who's playing a four, three, three, whose front, you know, whose, whose wingers stay very wide, you've got a bit of a problem playing a back three because it means your wingbacks have to stay very deep. So in that case, you, you probably do want to shift to a four. So I find it hard to believe that any team for 15 months in training only practices the back three. If, it, if that is what's happened, then, then probably a week isn't enough. But then you'd hope a, a professional coach would be able to see the, the problem rather than just pressing ahead with that plan. He must know what it looked like you know, on Friday in training. And presumably, given what it looked like on Sunday, it didn't look that good on Friday. So why go ahead with it? Well, Stellini has to go now, Barry, doesn't he? I don't think it makes any difference, does it, at this stage? He, he's, he'll go now or he'll go at the end of the season. It really doesn't matter. Well, it, it matters in you know to the extent that perhaps they, they can get Europa League rather than Conference League. If, if I mean, if that matters to them. But it should. Europa League is a more prestigious competition. So, I, I mean, what, but what do you do if you get rid of Stellini? Just let Ryan Mason do it. I mean, that's, he also is... You know, it's just a placing manager with assistant manager. <laughs> how, how far down the line do you go with that? The under-12s assistant manager will be doing the last game of the season. And the next question is Harry Kane, Will. And the McGinn says, how loyal would Harry Kane have to be to stay at Spurs? I think he'd have to be like one of those dogs that stays by their owner's grave. <laughs> there, there doesn't seem to be much reason to stay. If he ever wants to win anything, he has to leave. And so it's up to him if he wants to continue his legacy as a one-man club. Yeah, with a few loans and be that hero for the club and get his statue outside in a 10 years time or if he actually wants to win something. Producer Joel says that uh, Will just said one man club, uh, which actually makes more sense than a one club <laughs> man with Harry Kane, doesn't it? I mean, we should mention, uh, so, so, um, and he goes and then so the rebuild is, I mean, it is just enormous, isn't it? And we don't really have time to go through exactly. Well, he, he has scored 24 goals this season in an, in a, in a non-Holland season, he'd probably be golden boot yeah. for the fourth time. But Spurs time. are the fourth highest scorers and have conceded the sixth most goals. I mean, that feels very Spurs, doesn't it? That is, you know, but it doesn't well, feel it, like it's been a that season. That feels of, exciting. Yeah. Which, yeah. I know. It feels like a season of four threes and all this, exactly what you want. But actually, the season's been incredibly boring. Joe Willock's pass was brilliant, actually. Like, that was the sort of, you could forgive the defence for that one. Um, and there was a ruthlessness to, to, to Newcastle, which is brilliant. And you... You know, Newcastle and Manchester United are six points clear of fifth. Newcastle played against Moore. Only Brighton have games in hand on them who would still need to do a lot and they've got a lot of games. So do you sort of think four wins would probably be enough for Newcastle and Manchester United, which feels more than likely, which which feels like it's kind of cemented who will be in the top four. So there, there was such a lot. I mean, on and off the pitch, there was a lot to enjoy in this game. I loved when, I think, was, oh, Davin Sanchez was brought on and this was when they were five nil down. A, you're thinking, oh, yeah. he, what's he thinking at this point? Oh, thanks. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and then one of the coaching staff, while he was waiting to go on, 
was showing him this, you know, tablet and giving him very <laughs> detailed instructions. Like, what are you telling him? What, what on earth are you telling him? And then Danny Rose's comment, he was a pundit on Sky, he said, all I've been thinking of in that first half is how am I unemployed? It's <laughs> a very good line. Paul says, how many goals would your team have to be up after 21 minutes for you not to have a nagging feeling in the back of your mind they could still blow it? I can confirm that for me, I'm not sure who he supports, it's more than five. I know exactly what you mean. Um, and, you know, 5 nil half-time is always 6-1 full-time. Somebody, you know, Newcastle should have gone. It's 5 nil after 20 minutes. This could be 20. Let's see what we can do. Anyway, well done to them. Uh, Arsenal 3, Southampton 3. Uh, Arsenal wobbling again. That was a brilliant game, this, Will. Southampton 2 up after 14 minutes. 3-1 with two minutes left. Arsenal wrestle a point back. And at the end of it, everybody is sad. It was another indication of what happens when a team scores early against you. You know, At the moment, Arsenal seems to have some doubts in their mind. And if a team scores that early on, from a mistake especially, you end up questioning yourself and... That meant they didn't get her act together till 2-0, arguably. But in the last stages, it was you know, incredibly entertaining. Also showed Southampton's weaknesses at the back and they're very nervous, but let's be honest, they don't need to be because they're down. And Arsenal have players like Martin Odegaard that can in turn games at the highest level through individual quality, great moments, you know, whether it's passing, shooting you know, and having Saka they're in the right places you know they they just seem a bit to just seems to be lacking that sort of mentality that they had earlier on in the season at the moment to be as ruthless as they were to be as coherent as they were and it's a massive game for Arsenal midweek now and I back Man City to do them mm, yeah it's huge on Wednesday night isn't it I mean questions Wilson are, are about Arsenal's defence without William Saliba it, it feels harsh to pin this all on Rob Holding at least with Spurs, you could blame all of them. But, you know, are, are you pinning all of this on Rob Holding or, or not? Well, I mean, it, it's it's what Rob Holding represents, which is the squad isn't quite deep enough. Yeah, they, they've let in seven goals in three key games uh, and they coincide with Saliba being out. Zinchenko's absence from the West Ham game, I think, probably made a difference as well. But it, it, it's... It, it, I, but I, having said that, I don't think these are just defensive issues. I think there's been a sort of collective... I mean, everyone wants to say they bottled it. And I'm tempted to say they have bottled it now. But they, they they suddenly got themselves in a game at Anfield that hadn't been like the first 40 minutes and they couldn't react to it. They were totally dominant at West Ham and they chucked it away. And then they gave Southampton the first two goals. You know, the, the Ramsell mistake and then it was uh, an Odegaard, poor Odegaard pass. And Gabriel's positioning was very weird for uh, creating that space for Alcaraz to play the ball through to Walcott. Th- those are sort of bad mistakes. And what you, what you saw in all three of those games was they they had a period where they just couldn't do simple things. Thomas Partey's form has dipped really badly in the last few weeks. Odegaard had, pe- although he actually came good again late on against Southampton, he had periods in that game and in the previous two games where he couldn't play simple passes. There's, there's been a sort of collective I mean, failure of nerve. Feels like too easy a solution. Yeah, there's there's other things going on there. But at, at some point in each of those three games, they're mentally frozen and. They're still going into this game against City five points clear, but they could be 11 points. They should be 11 points clear. And then it's a very, very different... You know, the pressure on City, you know, they, they have to win that game and then Arsenal slip up in another game. Uh, I think City have been fortunate as well in terms of timing of fixtures that had they not been in the Cup semi-final and Brighton had not been in the Cup semi-final, they'd have been playing Brighton this weekend away, which is, you know, apart from Arsenal, probably the hardest game on the run-in. As it is, it's going to be the penultimate game of the season, by which time the pressure may well be off. 
So if they'd been playing Brighton now, maybe the drop points there and there's a bit more leeway for Arsenal, but that hasn't happened. I'm pretty sure City will win quite comfortably on Wednesday. Arsenal have to win that game now. And even then, Arsenal still have to go to Newcastle. City's running is relatively gentle. Yeah, I think City will probably end up having it wrapped up two or three games from the end of the season. Yeah, I feel like, the, the Barry, there was the fragility that was exposed in that game against Sporting, which they didn't, it wasn't everything, was it? You know, the Premier League was so important that losing that Europa League tie didn't matter, but it, it sort of felt like a bit of a moment. And I suppose you'll wait till the end of the season to look back at pivotal times in the season. But to, to not win any of these three... When they're all, you know, they're not all so... Liverpool away is not necessarily winnable given Liverpool's home form, but to be 2-0 up there, you know, if you say to them, at the moment when you're 2-0 up away at Liverpool, you're only going to draw these three games that are coming, you'd be like, there's no chance. Arsenal are way too good for that. Yeah, um, like Jonathan, I'm loath to say they've bottled it. I think if Arsenal... You know, I've thought for quite a while if Arsenal win the league, it'll be a miracle, but... And there's no shame in not winning the league when you're being pursued relentlessly by this state-funded Death Star, you know, that's getting bigger and bigger in your wing mirrors or your rear view mirror. But there's no doubt about it that they they are three bad results. You give them one, but three in a row, not go out. You know, what I found kind of odd was some people were trying to give Arsenal a bit of credit at the end of this game for drawing against the worst team in the league. And uh, that's a game they should win absolutely with a bare minimum of fuss. So, yeah, the, there is they, they, they certainly have wobbled there and, and the pressure does seem to have got to them. I think, I think the point you made about the sporting games is interesting because... The other Fulham game where they were 3-0 up at half-time, so they, they went to Fulham and it looked at the time like it might be quite a difficult game. And they scored, I think, in the first minute and then they got another two in the first half. The second half of that game, they were really poor and Fulham had loads of chances. And at the time, I sort of thought, I wonder if that is significant. And then I thought, no, no, they've won 3-0. I'm just sort of, you know, I'm looking for faults. And I really wish I'd been a bit sort of harder on sort of saying, second half there, protecting a lead, they actually, they could easily have let, if they let in a goal after sort of five, ten minutes of the second half, I think they really might have panicked in that game because Fulham had a lot of chances the second half. So I, I, I think, I mean, it's easy now, obviously, and, and but the sporting game is another example where we have been able to see the flaws and maybe we just haven't quite put them, put them into the right context. Uh, I'm also, do, do um, spaceships, do they have rear view mirrors? Do they have wing mirrors? I don't trust that. They seem an unaerodynamic thing to have a wing mirror, but I think an X-wing. I mean, if 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 Barry's suggesting that that Arsenal are a kind of X-wing, I would reckon they would have. You can always see in the back, can't you? When you know they don't, they're not constantly. Luke Skywalker's not looking around behind him to see if he's getting shot. He knows someone's locked on. Does he have a monitor with a camera? Maybe it's a monitor with a camera rather than a a, a wing mirror. I mean, or is it just the force? Does, that, does the force give you give you? Is a force just a rearview mirror? Is that, is Either that... way, you can see the Death Star behind you. I understood the analogy. Yeah, but, but, but does the Death Star actually move? It's it's more of a building. It's more of a, a sort of planet yeah, type thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we must work on that for next time you bring it out, Barry. I, I chatted to Ian Stone, the comedian Arsenal fan, on um, on Saturday, and he was just saying the, the moment of the game where he has seen Theo Walcott clean through like that in an Arsenal shirt <laughs> so many times <laughs> and has never scored. And he's just like, I know it's going to happen. Chris makes a good point. Please make a few seconds to recognise the excellent management of a potential head injury in the Arsenal-Southampton game. A lot happened. It could get lost. Barry's right to keep highlighting the issue. Bednarek went down. 
Um, he took a bad knock. He was desperate to come back on at a pivotal game for Southampton as well. And the medical staff said no, and he was furious. But what's interesting was, didn't Southampton say afterwards that it wasn't the concussion issue? Oh, I didn't hear that bit. But uh, yeah, I, I, I thought, you know, he got concussed and they said, who are you? And he said, I'm Yannick Vestergaard. <laughs> Very good. Um, Producer Joss says, there's a little droid looking around all the time as well, isn't there? Oh, there's, you have R2-D2 on your X-Wing. That's sort of your rear view mirror beeping at you. Nick Ames got in touch to tell us about Arsenal fans flying a banner in support of Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who's been detained in Russia uh, behind the North Bank goal as the teams came out for kickoff. He was arrested in March, has been detained on charges of espionage, which he, his employers and his native US all vehemently deny. Uh, he's being held in Moscow's notorious Lefortovo prison ahead of his trial, having been denied bail at a hearing this week. He's a passionate Arsenal supporter. The banner reflected the backing he's received from across the club's fan base. Uh, hashtag free Evan. It read, Arsenal fans stand with him. And that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, uh, we'll begin at the bottom of the table and work our way up. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Southampton, uh, we, we've kind of discussed, they're running, it's actually pretty hard and they're running out of games. They've got Newcastle, Liverpool and Brighton to play as well as uh, Bournemouth, Forest and Fulham. Um, above them then, Forest are in 19th. They lost 3-2 at Liverpool. They gave it a real go, Will, didn't they? With some proper League Two type attacking of long throws and set pieces. Were they unlucky not to get something or were they lucky that it was close? I think they were lucky it was close. Yeah, Liverpool had the majority of the game. Should have scored more goals. And Forrest set you know, set their own downfall by deciding that set pieces weren't worth defending, which at this stage of the season as a relegation threatened club is a pretty bad idea. Every goal came from a set piece. They just didn't know how to defend them as a, as a unit. Men were free. You know, people just left in five yards of space at this time. It's pretty bad. You know, but since... On the flip side, since the Maranakis comment about needing to improve performances, they have improved. Forrest showed what they can be at their best, which is mainly focused on Morgan's Gibbs, Morgan Gibbs-White being at his best and being allowed to play the role he he's most capable of doing in the forward line. They came close because of that, that sort of intensity that they offered, which they hadn't done for a good period in between February and the start of April to give them a chance and this you know they scored two goals which is massive at this point in the season if they can get back to scoring regularly but really you know they're so many games out winning 11 now off the top of my head it's it's looking bleak for Forest. Southampton are on 24 at the bottom Forest on 27 Everton 28 Leicester 28 Leeds 29 and a bit of a gap to Bournemouth 33 and Wolves 34, West Ham 34. All of them have played 32, except West Ham have played 31. Forrest's run-in includes Brighton, Brentford, Chelsea, Arsenal. How many points do you reckon you need to stay up, Wilson? 36, probably. Mm, I'd written 36 as well. So I, I sort of still think... I mean, look, Southampton clearly favours to go down. But I, I think that they basically they need to win four games. And... That's, I mean, how many games have they won this season? So they've won six. So to, to win four in the last next six is unlikely, but it's possible. And Sunderland's great escape under Gus Poyet 
began by them letting in a really annoying late goal against Manchester City. The Drua game, it looked like they were going to win improbably. But that performance was good enough. They went on, they, they won away at Old Trafford, they won away at Stamford Bridge. Uh, I think they hammered Cardiff at home. And then, was that the season they hammered Everton at home as well? So, you know, that, that, you know, that was a hard run in. And it, it is possible. Teams at the bottom can sometimes suddenly find a run of form. And maybe the way that Southampton played, certainly in the first sort of hour um, or first 65 minutes on, on Friday, maybe that can inspire them. But yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd say it's them, Forrest, and then one of Leeds, Leicester and Everton. Having said that, Bournemouth were... But Bournemouth have that four-point gap, don't they? So it'd have to go badly wrong. I mean, I know they, were, they obviously defended set plays terribly on Sunday, but yeah, I'd, I'd say it's the bottom two, then one of Leeds, Leicester and Everton to go down. Yeah, Liverpool six points off the top four. Jota's back on form, took that second goal beautifully. Diaz returning's big. I mean, it would be some story if they made it. I still can't work out if they need an entirely new midfield or if they could just kind of, if they don't need as much as I thought they did a few weeks ago. But let's go to Selhurst Park, Barry. Crystal Palace Everton. It might be my favourite game. Mason Holgate's two bookings aside, did anything happen? I don't think anything happened in this game. I've watched the highlights through twice now because I just found them so entertainingly bad. People went to that game. They paid to go and watch it. Uh, yeah, it was diabolical. The big news, and it's not really big, but Dominic Calvert-Loon is back for Everton. And people are saying, this is oh, Dominic Calvert-Loon, our saviour. Dominic Calvert-Loon, when he was fit this season, couldn't hit a cow's arse with a banjo. Um, so if, if he's their great hope to keep them up, they're in massive trouble, but... They were awful here. Uh, Palace were awful, and you know we, it was. We were expecting better from free scoring Palace under Roy Hodgson, but I, I nothing really to to say on this. But just Everton seemed completely bereft of ideas, and you surely need some sort of plan to uh, when you're in the kind of trouble they're in. Uh, I, I sort of understand why that game happened as it did though because I, I think if you're playing against the Roy, Roy Hodgson team if you don't make a mistake you probably won't concede and so you sort of think well we're, we're points in the bag let's not risk it and if anything happens well great but we'll, we'll take the points because if they are thinking say 36 I know Dice says he, he doesn't set targets but if he is thinking 36 if he does have that kind of target in mind they're, they're now, well, they're still eight points off it and they've got hard games to go, so maybe that isn't a great idea. But a point <laughs> away from home, I think, especially when you're in a relegation battle, is never a bad thing. And given Palace have won the previous three, it's it's the minimum they required and they got it. So especially with 10 men, they've got to take some credit from it. Yeah, I did enjoy Daesh's, you know, real commitment to not looking at the league table and saying the league table is irrelevant until the season has ended. And obviously he does have a point, but... The league table the week before the end of the season does link quite a lot to the league table on the end of the season, doesn't it? Um, Leicester beat Wolves 2-1. That ends a run of nine games without a win for Leicester. And impressive because Barry Madison was out and normally without Madison, they're garbage. And Dean Smith was quite attacking in this game and they came back from a goal down. It's a lot to take hope from, I would say. Yeah, uh, I expected them to lose. Uh, and then when I saw that Madison wasn't playing, I definitely expected them to lose. But they showed fight, which is something I haven't seen from them for a while. Kalichi, uh, uh, Ian Acho had a, had a decent game. He, he tends to blow very hot and cold. 
but um, a brilliant win for them. And, and the fact they came from behind to win shows Smith must have, you know, given them some sort of boost in confidence because that wouldn't have happened, you know, a month ago. Unless Dean Smith was there a month ago, but I don't <laughs> <Yeah>. think he was. <laughs> I don't think he was. I'd actually completely forgotten that Dean Smith had become. There's just so many managerial changes. I was thinking, God, I wonder when Leicester are going to get a manager in. And then I, somebody mentioned Dean Smith in it, and it all twigged again. Their winning goal was glorious. Will I thought? Yeah, team sweeping team move. You, your fullback pop it up to put it in first time. It was. Everything you'd expect from a decent team, which Leicester generally haven't been this season. So it was quite a change of pace. And those sort of moments will give them confidence going into a running, a very difficult stage of the season, that they've not only won, but won by doing some good things. It's, it's not your archetypal battling to a 1-0 victory. They did some very good moments, some great pieces of skill, showed that they are, they are a cohesive unit at the moment, which, again, they've not always looks like this season and if you are going to get fans back on side under a manager managerial appointment that underwhelmed at the time play, playing good football and lifting the roof off the king power is a decent idea well, i think the fact it's fullback to fullback is significant uh yes you know, the fact what you know, goal scored by fullback the assist from a fullback because fullbacks, where they've had really for for seemingly like five years, have had terrible injuries at fullback. That Pereira's been out, Castagna's been out, James Justin's been out. So the fact that they are starting to get fullbacks back, that that clearly does help them. So I mean, that that sounds like I'm sort of some kind of backhanded defence of Brendan Rodgers, which, which which maybe maybe it was. I didn't really intend it to be, but I think that the injuries to fullbacks have been a a, a major problem there. Now they played Leeds on Tuesday night, which is a big game. Isn't it? After Leeds' defeat to Fulham, Javi Gracia said, I'm worried about everything, which does sound like he's having some sort of existential crisis, not just Leeds, but, you know, a faulty boiler and a failing relationship and things. But we weren't worrying about Leeds, Wilson, after Gracia had the job for a bit and he'd won a couple of games. Now, perhaps we sh- we should worry about them. Well, they, they weren't worrying 42 minutes into the Palace game, were they? They, they were... They'd won two of the previous three. They were battering Palace. They were 1-0 up. Since when <laughs> they've conceded, uh, hang on, how many is it? 13 goals in two and a half games. And I'd suggest that's a big problem. Um, Melier's confidence seems absolutely shot. You know, he, did, did he, I think, did he let in 10 shots in a, you know, 10 shots on target in a row, I think, went past him in those Palace and Liverpool games. The, obviously, he, would, he played a part in both the, both the Fulham goals at the weekend. And Melier, I, you know, I think, has been a very good keeper for them. So it's not that he's a bad keeper. I think it's just, yeah, confidence has gone and other things are falling apart. They did, they, they play, they were, well, I feel like we always say this about these, there were moments in the game where they played pretty well. And even at 2-0 down, you saw, oh, they could get back into it. Um, and they did get one goal back. And, and the fact that Bamford's fit again clearly, clearly helps. But, um, I mean, Nonto coming back to fitness is a big thing. Um, but he obviously isn't. You know, doesn't quite look as good as he was before the injury yet. But but that 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 would help. But yeah, they they're definitely yeah one of those three competing for that last last relegation place. I'd, I'd, I'd suggest. And yeah, that that, that, that game is less against one of the other three is 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 enormous. Mm. Fulham have completely returned from the beach, haven't they? Up to ninth, five points off the Conference League. Loved how hard Pereira booted the ball in from a yard. How everyone should finish a chance like that. Um, above Leeds, Bournemouth, 
who uh, were hammered 4-0 at home by West Ham, Will. Uh, Zvonimir says, who's playing the most attractive football in the world? Moyes' is West Ham or Roy's Palace? I don't know if he sent that after the Palace-Everton game. He regressed to the mean, Roy, didn't he, on Saturday. Uh, but four on Thursday night, four on Sunday for West Ham. Um, they're 13th, six points clear of relegation. And that's... They could end up. This could end up being a miraculous sort of once in a generation season for West Ham, winning some silverware. Yeah, and it's another indication of what confidence does to a team when you do score scoring goals. It leads to more goals. They're playing well. They've always had a good squad this season. I think they felt stretched a bit with European football, but once they have found themselves under a bit of pressure, they have delivered because they're an experienced team. You look through, De- you know, Declan Rice. You look at the defences, he's reverted back to a far more experienced Premier League defence in recent weeks. You've got the likes of Antonio up top, who's been there and done that over down the years. And once they knew they were on top against Bournemouth, they didn't let it slip. There's no question themselves. They knew there was weaknesses in that Bournemouth team and they went at them with the, in the right places. And, you know, Fornells capped it off with what has generously been described as a scorpion kick, but more looks like what what, yeah. what would happen if my daughter tried to kick a football after jumping <laughs> off a shelf. But it went in. Yeah. I was trying to think how how good was that how good was that goal? Because it looked unlike lots of goals. Does that make it extra special? He's done well to get or his leg that... there. So I'll give him that. Like yeah. you know, I don't know if, if... But 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 it but it has to it has to fly in, doesn't it? For it to be... A- yeah, if that's on goal of the month, then I'm writing a letter to yeah. the BBC. <laughs> oh, he was there. He scored. He, he was he, he was he was emotion he was emotional about it. You know, it was the high high point or possibly the low point of season. We don't know why he was why he was crying. Yeah, and say the the West Ham are putting you know putting crosses into the box and people are there to finish him, which hasn't been the case for most of the season. That was that win over Ghent four one on the in the Conference League on Thursday night. They went a goal behind. Um, they'll play AZ Alkmaar in the first leg of the semis on the 11th of May. Um, felt to me, Wilson, this was the Bournemouth I've kind of been expecting all season under Gary O'Neill, and I've been wrong. Um, it's kind of okay. They're allowed a few of these now, aren't they? They're probably okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess if 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 they were looking at the run-in, they just said, oh, I'm going against West Ham, it's a game they, they could be getting... One or three points from him. And then just the way they defended set plays was the problem. Um, you know, two two of the first three goals were set plays. The other one was a, was a header. Uh, and swinging down half time, they're, they're not coming back. So I would imagine it's a pretty frustrating game for, for O'Neill because it just was poor defending on two set plays, which is the kind of thing they have been doing well. So it just felt like they, they, they handed that game away. But they, they probably, who have they got left to play? They've, they're what, they're, they're five points above the relegation zone. And they've got uh, Southampton away. Well, I mean, that's a chance for Southampton to get back in the race. Leeds at home, that's you know, obviously big. Chelsea at home, well, <laughs> at the minute, that's three guarantee points. They'll have a goalless draw away at Palace. And then they've got United at home, Everton away. So it's it's not the hardest running. I'm sure they'll be fine. Brentford Villa, uh, not a lot to say about this game. It sort of meant the least, I would say, Barry. But Ivan Tony got his 19th of the season. just wonder if he, he might be a target for Chelsea or... You know, he's a wonderful player. I mean, obviously, ban pending might make a difference on on what people decide to do. Well, of course, it'll make a difference because it's likely to be a very long ban. I'm amazed he hasn't been banned already. I can't understand why he hasn't been banned. He continues to play, continues to score goals which affect other teams. 
I have nothing against Ivan Tony. I'm not that fussed about whether players better or not. But the rules are there. He broke them. He's admitted breaking them. And he still hasn't been punished. And it's inexplicable. But uh, he is obviously a good player. But I, if I was looking for a centre-forward, I wouldn't touch Ivan Tony until I knew what punishment he was getting for his... Uh, gambling indiscretions. All right. Well, that'll do for part two. Part three, we'll do the FA Cup semi-finals. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Gary says, maybe we should bring back the days where the semi-finals were not on TV. Not two classics here. Um, Manchester City beating Sheffield United 3-0. It was quite a muted atmosphere. Priorities elsewhere for both sides. The magic of the FA Cup, Will, isn't it? Yeah, I was was driving to Wrexham at the time and had a similar amount of space on the motorway to Riyad Mahrez going through the middle of the Sheffield United (laughs) defence. Yeah, I'm a Man City fan. I never even contemplated going because I knew what would happen. Um, And look, they won 3-0 without any trouble with dropping a few players and... You know, uh, anything else happened? Rio Mars. Rio Mars took his goals well, so that was nice. Pep said, Mars is always grumpy with me when he doesn't play all the time. He makes me notice how grumpy he feels. Today, no. He's an exceptional player, a big stage player, has the mentality to score the goal. I, at Wilson, I did like, as Will alluded to, I, I love a, a dribbled goal where ostensibly the player doesn't actually dribble around anybody. I instantly thought of John Barnes at the Maracanã. And less instantly, but it is in my mind, Chris Marsden for Southampton against Ipswich. I wondered if you had other examples of... Oh, is that, was that Jimmy Greaves' goal, isn't there? Where he's, mm. he's running on an angle and he just sort of keeps on being slightly yeah. quicker than a load of like, <laughs> 60 defenders. I, I think, see, I think it's goals like that which are what lead to the total misrepresentation of football in film. The people see those goals, think, oh, that's what football's like. And so you then get the, the, the classic shot, the you know, close-up of a player beating... 18 players while barely moving. I think there was a Weetabix advert in the 60s or 70s, and it was on fantasy football, where they had a player running through and you sort of the, the camera was facing the player and then all these legs slid past him and they counted the number of players he dribbled past and it was like 18. So some players had slid and managed to get up and then run back round. Um, I mean, obviously it's wonderful balance and that's what, you know, there are players running off the ball. Oh, and it's also, you know, presumably sort of slight weight distribution changes that make it look like he's going to change. I mean, there's something I, I was trying to, to watch with Matoma on Sunday the, you know, he did his his uh, university dissertation on, on the art of dribbling. Mm, with he GoPros fit himself with a GoPro, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've been trying to kind of find it. And, and um, my, my physio found a, a, like a paragraph from it, translated into English. And he seems to, I, if, if I understand it correctly, he says he tries to start with the ball on his back foot and touch it twice with his back foot before touching it with his front foot. Because... Normally, you take it on your back foot and move it straight to your front foot. And so that immediately sets the defensive player off balance because everything in their training has led... The, you know, everything they've ever seen in their life before says it's going to go to the other foot. And if you don't do that, the, their weight has immediately gone the wrong way. And I was trying to watch him do that on, on Sunday. And either Aaron Wan-Bissaka knew this and just stopped him or I hadn't, mis- <laughs> I hadn't understood it properly, or my eyes just aren't good enough to work out what's going on. But I couldn't actually see that. But that 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 seems to be what he wrote in this thesis, if it was indeed translated correctly out of the Japanese, and if I had indeed understood it properly. So Aaron Wambasaka has read Mitoma's thesis, either translated in English or 
What he learned Japanese. Aaron <laughs> Ten Hag really got yeah. his marginal gains. Aaron, it, here you are, mate. The modern game is 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 it's all about research. It's 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 one before you go on the pitch. So yeah, Aaron Mbasaka has university level Japanese, so you can read read the thesis of opposing players. Delini can't get a back four together in a week, but Wambasaka learned Japanese <laughs> in five days. <laughs> that man Sheffield United game. It- I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones. It's like the Battle of the Bastards where Ramsay Bolton's forces, uh, they kind of draw Jon Snow out from his his army because they've got his brother and, you know, they release him and he's running back to Jon and they're firing arrows at him. So basically you've got Jon standing on his own with his own army about 200 metres behind him so it's little Jon Snow on his horse with his sword facing this wolf. And, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, the analogy breaks down insofar as uh, Jon Snow eventually ended up winning the Battle of the Bastards, but he was very lucky to do what, so. Wasn't there some reinforcements arrived? Yes, yes. Late, at the last, last minute. Last minute reinforcements got him out of jail. Always happens in those stupid things. It's like Lord of the Rings. It's just like you know, Rides the Rowan in Lord of the Rings. The yeah. orcs, the orcs have beaten the elves. So the elves just get some other mates, and then the orcs get some bigger mates. Did John Snow have? Does he have? Did he have wing rearview mirrors in his on his horse to see? <laughs> no, that would be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um, well, there, there's the treble conversation done <laughs> pretty well, <laughs> isn't it? Um, there, there seems to be just a blanket reluctance or an agreed refusal across all broadcasting companies, journalists, whoever, just not to mention these this herd of 115 elephants that are standing in the corner of the room every time Manchester City win a big game of football or any time they swat their latest uh opposition aside i'm i'm just curious like has have people just decided we won't talk about it or have i i don't know i don't, i'm not in the loop from my knowledge of you know planning live football and you know talk, and working with ex pros it's quite often they just don't want to talk about something that is complicated right and i mean i don't mean that in a kind of patronizing it sounds patronizing but like there's not a lot they can say and you know they just sort of think well if we don't talk about it we won't get shit on social media we won't we won't get scared about saying the wrong thing or getting into trouble and so let's not talk about it at all um would be how i imagine the producer and executive producer might just think well we don't need to do this today i don't know um i don't know as a city fan will how you feel about just winning everything winning everything's good my constant moral dilemmas are you know a minor issue, um, but I'll, I'll I'll speak to the producer and explain that I don't want to discuss complicated matters. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously it's a complicated subject which I won't be able to sum up in thirty seconds. I will say that morally, I have been conflicted for a very long time. I settle on the ambiguous argument that Manchester City is my local club. When I was born, I lived on Platt Lane and if anyone remembers Platt Lane it was where the training ground was in the 80s and that's where I was born and that shows the proximity to cities main road had a Platt Lane stand and having 
my roots there. I don't. I find it very hard to give up the club, but especially when I lived in London, um, because it, it it anchored me back to Manchester. I apologise, my accent is rubbish, but I am Mancunian, and I don't see why I have to give up my football club because I'm not saying you should. No, I'm not saying you should, but I mean this is these are questions that people have asked me before, and I'm not saying absolutely not thinking that's what you're asking me and so I've always thought that I support the football club I don't support the owners I, I don't buy replica shirts anymore or anything like that because I'm a 35 year old man I shouldn't but that's a different subject and so I have the cheapest season ticket available and I enjoy supporting Manchester City still and I enjoy the occasion of going to the match with my friends but yes I am again morally conflicted about the whole thing hmm. and in footballing terms Wilson, we just want competition, don't we? And like Arsenal are pushing them. They may not win the Champions League. Real Madrid will be fascinating. Manchester United could beat them in the FA Cup final. They could come away with nothing. And there will always be good, t- better teams who compete for everything, won't there? But well, no, I mean, I, I, that, that's a... Uh, it's very modern, the, is that? They've always been good teams, but like not not this good. And the reasons for them being good are very worrying, you know, that... that another challenge arises up City can always spend more money because they can always find another sponsorship deal they can always find another arm of the state who will be happy to sponsor whether that's at a market rate or not and that that's largely what the, these charges are about so state-run clubs have a huge advantage and it's it's not even just in that it's that and I think this is the real danger of state-run clubs this is why they're different even to to big private equity funds that they have such resources that they can challenge anything legally and they can make that legal battle crippling for the sporting body. It's How can the FA possibly rein in the state of Saudi Arabia or Abu Dhabi or, or wherever? They, they can't. And, and, and that's, that, that's where the danger is, that a state-run club is essentially ungovernable. And so the regulations that have been put in place really aren't regulations. So only regulations if, if those clubs agree to go along with them. If they don't want to go along with them, they've got a lot of ways of getting around them because they have such such resources. You see that particularly, uh, we, you know, we've seen now in, in various revelations over the last two or three weeks of the way that the, the, the government clearly were quite keen for the Saudi takeover of, of Newcastle to go ahead. So if, if you know, how can the FA mediate in some diplomatic matter? It's, it's absurd. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's just... Having clubs run by states just takes it out of the realm of football, and that that's hugely dangerous and damaging. And if City end up winning five leagues out of you know five league championships out of six, that's that's a level of dominance that that, that you know threatens to send the Premier League into another Liga or Bundesliga, and that's that's not what anybody wants. Um, no, no, I I agree with all of that, and uh, it was very articulately it was very articulately put. So, uh, uh, thank you, Wilson. Very articulately. <laughs> you, don't, <laughs> you don't want to miss... Is that even a word, articulately? Is that a word? No, articulately oh, is. Articularly, I'm pretty sure isn't. <laughs> no, probably not. It's not the right word to get wrong, is it? Uh, elsewhere, well, the other one was uh, not a fascinating game, Barry, between Brighton and Manchester United. You sort of thought on paper it could have been a fascinating game. Yeah, I expected a more entertaining game. I think it could have gone either way, but there were no like real. Go- there was no Ann Smith must score type chances that I rec- can recall. Uh, what I thought was interesting during the penalty shootout, David De Gea 
clearly had been handed a water bottle with the penalty taking habits of assorted Brighton players on uh, you know taped to the side and he kept consulting it and I wondered why because the if I remember correctly, I think it was during the World Cup, maybe, and it must have been Emmy Martinez because he's the kind of guy who would do that. They t- he just picked up his opposite numbers water bottle with the pointers on it and chucked it into the fans. Yeah, I think the Australian keeper in the oh. in the playoff to get to the World Cup, I think. Oh, okay, yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, Redmayne. Redmayne is that his name? Andrew Redmayne. I, I went to Les Mis last week. It's sensational. I know it's been on for thirty-eight years, but somebody should have told me just how good it is. Les Mis, honestly, if you haven't been, go. It's one of the best three hours I've ever spent. Eddie Redmayne's in the film of it. That's why that occurred to me. I wasn't sort of a right. I understand. I was like, okay. That's good because, you know, you don't really, you're not into music that much. There's quite a lot of music. No, in well, so. like, I'm a, I'm a 46-year-old man who suddenly finally enjoys gardening and musical theatre. It's, it's, it's not the midlife crisis I was expecting. But. <laughs> <laughs> you could branch out, couldn't you? It's an interesting few days for David De Gea, Barry, because, you know, he, he played well in this game. I know he didn't save any penalties, even though he had it on his water bottle. Um, but he had an absolute shocker against Sevilla. Uh, on Thursday night, where Manchester United were garbage and Harry Maguire had another bad game. And it was a very disappointing night for them. Sevilla were brilliant and the atmosphere in Seville was brilliant. But you sort of think if 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 Ten Hag wants to play the way that Ajax played, for example, however good a shot stopper De Gea is, he's not the right keeper for Eric Ten Hag. Yeah, I agree. And he, he is an excellent goalkeeper from the waist up. But... Um... He's not good enough with his feet to play the Ten Hag preferred style. And uh, apparently he's negotiating a new contract, which seems slightly odd. I'm sure there's plenty of teams that would be delighted to have him. I wonder what Ten Hag makes of the fact that he's maybe being offered a new deal. He might not be as amenable to that as the, the club hierarchy. Mm. It's hard. I mean, he is actually quite good from the waist down because he saves a lot with his feet. But he's not well, very good true, at yes. playing out from and, the back. And to get in position yeah. to, to save with your hands, you do need to have good feet. Yeah. Uh, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, of all your analogies, of all the things I've, I've, said... I've, I've had several <laughs> analogies today. Uh, that was the worst of a poor lot. But you are aware I am at a low ebb. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the Women's Champions League and the Guardian Women's Football Weekly is out tomorrow. Listen to that. Chelsea lost one nil at home to Barcelona. Caroline Graham Hansen's goal was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Arsenal came back from two goals down to draw at Wolfsburg. Arsenal's uh, defending for Wolfsburg's second goal is absolutely sensational. It's just a pass across the back to the centre forward. It's wonderful. But their equaliser was a, a lovely move. Uh, in the AFL, Leighton Orient confirmed as League Two champions. Rochdale relegated from the Football League for the first time in 102 years. Uh, Liam says, any idea who won the National League? Probably not much of a story down there, but surely worth glancing at. Uh, Will, you were at Wrexham uh, for their victory over Boreham Wood. Paul Mullins' first goal was absolutely sensational. But how was the atmosphere? Did you get to meet Paul Rudd? Was Paul Rudd there? I didn't. I didn't see the camera pan to Paul Rudd, I only saw the goals. Well, after mentions on this podcast of Game of Thrones, Star Wars and Les Mis, we're getting to the real Hollywood ending here. Yeah, we are now. <laughs> and you, I got none of your references because I've never seen Star Wars, never seen Game of Thrones, I've never seen Les Mis. I'm very much Deep Buscemi, hello fellow kids, uh, when it comes to popular culture. 
But I did sit next to a journalist at Wrexham, I won't name him, who did not know who Paul Rudd was. So that was good fun. Uh, Paul Rudd was there. He'd gone for a pint beforehand. I'm sure it was lovely. Um, but yeah, on, on, on the actual football, yeah, Wrexham didn't play that well. You know, they went a goal down uh, in the first minute which is, seems to be a, a trait in football at the moment. And, uh, you know, the party was silenced for a while. Um, but obviously they're better than anyone else in that league, even Notts County, because they have people like Paul Mullen. He got no service all day. Not, nothing. And then at the, he had two brilliant moments where he went and picked up the ball on the left-hand side, shrugged off to the defender, cut into the box and killed in the top corner in a goal that I'm sure, Max, you would appreciate from your, your time supporting Paul um, and, and showed that he is yeah, he is a player far above that standard. And the National League is the hardest league to get out of. There's only one automatic promotion place and that's why Stockport last season spent all their money on bringing in Paddy Madden and why Wrexham targeted a striker that will score them 38 goals this season. And it was you know two incredible individual moments and then he was lofted a above everyone at the final whistle was absolutely loving it you know everyone seems to have embraced Wrexham even Paul Rudd if anyone knows who he is Paul Mullin what a cult hero good great striker will do incredibly well in League 2 um, obviously cut above everything in National League and you know it was, a, it was a great time for Wrexham the party started and I left at half nine before it really got going yeah, okay, sorry, can I just say I've got slight slight I, know, I, I think their ownership so far seems to have been absolutely exemplary. And, and I think they've, you know, if you're going to be a rich bloke taking over a club, that's the way to do it. However, I do have slight concerns about the way a football club has been turned into content. And I think it's a very fine line to judge between are you doing the documentary, you know, in order to promote the club to, to, to sort of to uh, widen its, its global appeal or are you setting out to make the documentary and buying the club to provide the content for it? And you've got to—I think they've got to be very, very careful that they're doing the former, not the latter. It, I mean, it, and it even seems sort of much more clean and 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 and, and virtuous than than private equity take, you know, running a club for profit. But this does seem to be somebody who's got a real—he has developed his real bond with Wrexham. And, and as I say, in, in this instance, it all seems fine. But. It, do, it, it happened with the other channel with Peter Crouch arriving and there's talk of a DAZN documentary which I think never ended up happening. But I think we've got to be very careful that football clubs are run for business of football and not for providing content for media companies. Let's turn Barry's poor health into content. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we alluded to it at the top, Barry. You're on some strong painkillers. But I think you've performed manfully despite that. Well, I've just come out. I've had a really bad cold for a week. I was just coming out of it. I was looking forward to my first proper night's sleep in uh, probably five five days last night. And then I had a, I was eating and something went down the wrong way. I had coughing fit. My coughing fit was so bad that I put my back out <laughs> and I appear to have pulled or strained muscles the whole way from the, down my left side from my neck Along my rib cage, I know they're not muscles. Uh, what is it? Intercostals? Yeah. Well, I suppose they are muscles. And along my waist. So anyway, I was in absolute agony. I went into the kitchen to get some painkillers, turned on the light. And, of course, 
that was the moment, poof, the light went, the bulb went, so the kitchen was pitch black, and I went, oh, fuck, the gods are really shitting on Barry tonight. So uh, I barely slept a wink last night, and I, I thought, well, it's too late to bail out of the pod because I can't get anyone to replace me, so I'll just take a load of painkillers and soldier through, which is what I've done, so I'll, hence the inane... Lord of the Rings analogies. <laughs> well, listen, Barry, the, you are irreplaceable. Uh, Etc. <laughs> and so on. So, yes, I, I apologise for not being anywhere near the top of, of what passed my game this morning. Are you um? Are you getting someone to change the light bulb? Yeah, and the ultimate indignity is that I now have to think which of my friends who live nearby will laugh the least when I text them to ask to come around to change a light bulb. Maybe we could get a pod oh, listener to I, get around, to come around. Maybe this is, is this what it idea. is. Call for help. Yeah, uh, this could bring the Football Weekly community even closer together. If you live in or around Brixton, I love I love the Football Weekly community. I don't want any of them knowing where my house is. So uh, yeah, I have to text one of my mates. Can you come around and change a light bulb? Because I'm a sad, decrepit old <laughs> oh, man. We'll find out if the light bulb has been changed on Thursday because we're not back until Thursday, which is after the Arsenal City game. And then we're going to do a double shift and then do a pod after the Thursday night games um, because when we planned this, they seemed important. I think they still are. Uh, but for the time being, thank you, Wilson. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Will. Thanks, Max. Get well soon, Barry. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.